Doc. Hello, uh, welcome to Beastly Theories. I'm your host, Andy McGrath. Now, today we have a, a very special guest with us. I'd like to say a very big hello and welcome to celebrated author and literary lycanthrope, Linda Godfrey. Linda, thank you for joining us. How are you? Well, for a literary lycanthrope on rainy day, <laughs> I think pretty well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. That just popped into my head today, and I thought that has to be the name of this episode, Literary Lycanthrope, because I could barely say it. I had to practice it a number of times as well. well okay. Just, just so people don't think I'm the lycanthrope. <laughs> so you'll have to say um, lycanthrope. Right. Um, I'm not even sure the right word to use, tracker. And then, you don't, then you're losing your alliteration, so I'm just messing it up for you. Sorry. Lycanthropic librarian? Um, well, no. no, it's it's a, it's a lycanthropic because people will. I work very hard so people understand. I don't really believe in solid human bodies turning into solid uh -huh. like bodies, and no. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't ever do it myself. No, no, of course not. I mean, no, no matter the situation, and I just for a yeah, matter of record, I don't believe that either. That essentially that humans are turning into animals uh, although i do understand how some people uh, do find that very valid now i've just read your new book i know what i saw it's just been released i was really thoroughly impressed almost overwhelmed actually with the variety of the creatures in it uh, it's almost almost a compendium of the north american unknown you know it's real really sensational uh, i just just as not um, and you know, without going through your history i think a lot of people know a lot about you already okay, could you just take us through some of the your favorites from the books from some of the more strange and unusual beasts that, that you cover in it in in the new book yes okay yeah um well the main idea behind this book and maybe why it seems to range so far is because i was originally asked to create a book about mythology ancient mythology and contemporary urban legend and uh -huh. um the editor had a very long, uh, kind of a lengthy title for it, um, but I kind of got what he wanted. And then unfortunately, um, he was no longer at the company. There was a big merger between Penguin and Random House, and you know the, the staffs, um, some wonderful people um, were no longer with us. And so I had to kind of recast the, the story. And I also had the chance then to make it a little bit more my own idea because as soon as I started looking at any kind of legends at all, I realized that there were so many that echoed one another and also echoed the past and then seemed to reemerge in the future. Very ancient things that come out in the uh, modern times as something like Slender Man. We, we have all these weird stick figure, shadowy type things, you know, and where do you look for that? And my, my question has always been, well, it's like the chicken or the egg. Which came first? The monster or the myth you know right. was there were there these actual creatures that were then sort of um just written about or spoken about over campfires until they took on their own life and then these creatures they were talking about sort of emerged from some joined human consciousness you know and that sounds very weighty indeed but um there there's a lot of there are a lot of people who believe that sort of thing or was was it that the creature was just read in and had been with us in the past but no longer was? Or are they sort of a um, 
you know, Jungian archetype that we carry in our, our minds, these animal-human combinations that we often don't even know what to call. But it just, it seems too unlikely that people all over the world would come up with some sort of a very tall, huge, lumbering, hominid-type, almost human, proto-human creature like Bigfoot. There's something extremely similar. They're not always quite as big, but it's this, you know, half man, half ape sort of of uh, being that shows up everywhere. How can that be if, you know, we have all these separated cultures, separated by time and great distance, and we still are coming up with these same beasts? Um, the same thing about uh, canines, you know, and, and of course I started with the upright canines, and then I realized there were all sorts of really odd ones that couldn't be explained. And um, some, most of the time people don't worry about gender, but I did, I did suddenly notice that I seem to have a pileup of dog woman or dog lady uh -huh. sightings. I had one very intriguing one that, that came in uh, from a gentleman um, over in one of the eastern states, and he actually encountered what um, the whole area of high schools was uh, in, in Pennsylvania was calling the dog lady or dog woman. And um, they never said, I, I never got satisfactorily out of him or, or his two friends that were co-witnesses, why they particularly thought it was a dog woman, uh -huh. lady. You know, there wasn't anything to really, it's just that that's what the legend said. So that's what they assumed that mm -hmm. they were seeing. Yeah, so we have everything in this book from um, that sort of legendary canine that could be upright or this particular one jumped off a rocky edge that was abutting a, a, a road and these people were driving on the road and it jumped down probably like 10 feet down to the road bed right in front of their truck, you know, engaging them in a very direct way. So in a lot of ways, that's sort of like the modern day Beast of Bray Road or Michigan Dogman. Um, but then there are other ones. Um, there's a very old, an older uh, legend that goes back to Civil War days uh, in eastern Michigan. And that one is called the Witchy Wolves of, of Omer Plains. And in the old days, hmm. um, things that looked like werewolves and witches were almost automatically combined in like all the European witch trials and, you know, much literature. And this happened to be regarding something that people considered both a witch-related happening and, or, and that might just, it might not mean there's, you know, a, a, a crone mixing potions. Uh, witchy just means it might refer to a, a type of magic or magical process. Mm -hmm. And then the wolves, and this one involves um, a Civil War uh soldiers lost in war and coming back, you know, the remains of them in a shoebox and then the, something happens to the grave where where he's buried and the witchy wolves are, are um, involved in this. And then it comes all the way to present day where modern day teenagers are still going out to this area of the plains near Omer, Michigan and hearing wailing in the trees and sometimes something runs at their car and sometimes they'll catch a glimpse of a wolf-like uh, feature and it's just kind of interesting how this thing is is woven through time. Then we get into things. I don't think I even really touched like the, the flying um, bat-like creatures or the giant birds, but we do get into um, other things like upright 
cat people. I talked a little bit about those. Mm-hmm. There's some uh, Western um, spirit-type cats called the, the chindi, which can also change into other features. It's almost like the uh, the Irish um, water horse that uh-huh. you know, looks yeah. one way and then you know can can change it, change around to other things. So we have that, and then we have a great mystery all over. And I know that you have this a lot in the UK, which is the black mystery cats that look yes. like black panthers. They look kind of like mountain lions or pumas, mm-hmm. um, but there are not supposed to be, for sure, any um, wild cat or excuse me any um of the i'm sorry i need i need a drink just one second i drink a water that's okay sure mountain lion is what i was trying to get at uh, sure and then we're talking about the mystery big cats i know that you're you're currently making a documentary on this phenomenon in your part of the country um and it, it is a big subject here in the uk i've taken four big cat sightings today wow um but with the UK, I mean, they were in the hundreds, if not thousands, and it's, oh, it's yes. a very obvious origination point for them. So we had the um, the Dangerous Wild Animals Act in 1976, and it was very prohibitive about the types of enclosures and and roaming space that these big cats needed. And people, there was even an article that came out today about one very well-known big cat keeper that released um, his big cats in the Malvern Hills and mm-hmm. uh, not far from Birmingham and actually released a lot of other big cats for other owners. Uh, sort of a, a controlled release before this act came in because everybody knew they weren't going to be able to afford it and uh, right. and at the same time, none of the zoos were set up to, to, to receive any of these animals. So they just let them go and we're looking at you know, probably fourth yes. generation descendants. Right, yeah. yeah. I tracked down Terry Hooper who um, for many years kept track of the, this um, black, well, I think the black and the tan creature sightings mm-hmm. in, in his area. He was a um, really wonderful originator of some of the superhero type of comic books there in the UK. Kind of a, oh, wow. yeah, really, uh, most people don't realize that. But I he also, he had this uh, secondary duty of the, the police would call him when there were reports and he would, uh, record them all and has quite a big stash. I think he finally had to stop, but we had a very similar person here in western Wisconsin who somehow found out about me and my, you know, trying to save stories of the, the Beast of Bray Road. And he had been taking reports of great mystery cats in western Wisconsin. And it's been known that there have been at least a few of the regular tan mountain lions kind of slipping their way mm. east um, for some years, but there are many, many, many more reports than the local authorities will admit to. And then the crazy part is that there have been, um, by his count, and his name is is Stephen Stanek, deserves a lot of credit, and by his count, there have been well over 150 known reports just in the past three or four decades, right within an 18-mile radius of one little town, Hillsborough. Wow. And... Um, talk about monumental coincidences. Why am I always connected with these things? <laughs> but um, both of my maternal, my maternal and my paternal grandmothers lived in this little 18-mile radius. One lived huh. in Hillsboro, was a school teacher there. The other one lived in on a farm 
on a ridge um, where there were these things seen, not by my, not by my grandmother that I know of, but um, right within this area, they both were. So, you know, I have some personal interest in it, too. I spent a lot of summers in, in Hillsboro. I know the area very well. And it's very odd compared to the rest of Wisconsin and even uh, many parts of the U.S. It, you, you turn... You, you drive into that area and you open your eyes and you look around and you'd swear you were in Colorado. It's all rock cliffs, um, river canyons. Um, it, it's just different different plants. It's very, very, it, it looks like a place where cougars would live. And the, weir the weirdest thing, I started to say this about a minute ago and, and kind of got lost in the explanation, is that well over half of those 150 some reports are of black panther-like creatures Aha. and most of these sightings are in daylight from fairly close people will see it in their yard from their front porch or in their field while they're out in the field or um, 10 feet in front of their car or their truck as they're driving around and most of them are not afraid to tell um, Steve Stanek thinks there are still many untold from the people that still are afraid to tell about it but um, there's a huge number that were just more than willing to have their names known and have this reported because they get so frustrated after a while of nobody believing them. The people who have seen it believe them, but you know the ones who haven't, oftentimes your own family um, doesn't believe. And then the Department of Natural Resources or DNR um, poo-poo's them too, you know. And so I, I felt like the people there deserved an outlet and a place mm. where others could listen to them and. And actually, that is all in the book. Um, there's, there are two chapters relating to those things, and then a long, long appendix of uh, just quick quotes of things that people have seen so people can get. And I, and I still couldn't even fit them all into that appendix. You know, just uh, maybe half of them got in there uh, because there are just so many. But so that, that was a start. And then the people, the witnesses we had were so stellar. We have one woman who has a PhD, who spent time as a staff assistant with the uh, very well-known Florida Panther Project where the, the cougars were dying out in Florida. And so they brought in um, mega cougars from Texas to mate with uh. them and kind of enlarge and, and uh, help that population um, bloom. And it has. It's, it's very, very well. And, wow. yeah, so that, and I, you probably heard a little um, tinkling sound on my on my um, computer there, I just had a note from somebody who um, wrote dog experience. So I mean, these things uh. are these things are coming in all the time. Um, but I really wanted people to know about these reports, and felt that this was a good way to do it. You know, just and luckily I happened to have it. It was like everything aligned, all the stars aligned. Um, my youngest son has a film degree from the School of Art Institute of Chicago, and he needed something to make a good reel. Um, I happened to inherit a small amount of money from my uncle, who grew up on a farm in that same area. You know, and my husband and I were thinking about uh, fixing our deck, which it has holes in it, and we're like, well, we could fix the deck, or we could make a movie. Hmm. Fix the deck, <laughs> make a movie. Fix the deck, guess and which one? To me, the choice is very, very simple. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, and there were and there were other things, you know. Yeah. You'll and be then, falling through the holes on the deck for some time to come, I imagine. Well, it's, it's, uh, 
it's crazy because in the process of this, I ended up finding out that my grandmother, well, for one thing, there were UFOs seen in above Hillsborough in the late 40s, early 50s, before they were really a big thing, and these farmers didn't know what they were. So there's that. In, that's all in the book, and an inordinate number of plane crashes. I talk about, and there was no um, real pl flight, pl flight path through that area uh -huh. at the time, and fatalities, and Right east of Hillsboro is a 20, range, 20, 20 mile range of um, hills that are made up of a type of pink quartzite that is some, it's uh -huh. some of the oldest earth in the world. And you, when you have that amount, that's a huge amount of quartz type material, which you know is used for mm -hmm. um, radio stations and things when you, you want to have communications, uh -huh. it has kinds of uses. So I just opened up this big can of worms, and, I, and my grandmother who lived there, I found out, was a spy during World War II for the U.S. because um, she's perfectly fluent in Czech and in English. And my, wow. other, my other grandma, who lived right there and didn't even know her until my dad started courting my mom, um, I, I, found I, had, I inherited all her letters, and I found out that she was corresponding with someone who was involved in... Um, some type of aero communications with with the Germans, and when uh, after VE Day, she was trying to get she was trying her darndest to get out of Germany, and somehow latched onto my other grandmother as somebody to try and sponsor her, and she was drawing little diagrams of what they knew about the uh, different UFOs at the time, and I included her, the the letterhead and all that the 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 excuse me, the envelope address so you can see that it's genuine and her little diagrams and discussed why they looked like um, upside-down teacups rather than saucers and how the propulsion systems were in the flare of the bottom of this kind of bell shape, not in separate wings. Now, how would that lady know this? And, you know, my grandmother, that grandmother had a fifth-grade education, probably had no idea what she was talking about. But she wrote her this, and I have the So it's just really odd. I feel like I'm at the bottom of some sort of, uh, you know, wildcat vortex. I'm, I'm not sure why it's all. I think it's it's very, I, I speak to people all the time about this kind of thing, and it's very odd how people like yourselves, they fall into this, this world. And you, as you say, you did kind of fall into it originally when you started investigating the, um, the Bright Road Beast how they find other things in their past with other relatives that have something to do with it, or at least to do with this world of the, the strange and unusual. That doesn't surprise me at all. I did just want to say one thing very quickly, though. As a British person, it's very funny that you said teacups. Uh, the, the UFOs look like teacups instead of saucers, because, of course, the first thing I thought was, well, well the saucer is missing from that teacup. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Because that's how we would drink it, you know, with a teacup and a saucer to hold it. Um, that's funny. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Um, but yeah, I, regarding these things, I mean, obviously the book, and I recommend it to anybody, literally was like reading, you know, a very, very um, interesting compendium. There was just so much that you could, you could even flick from part to part if you wanted to, you know, not just go from the start to, to the finish. I, I thought it was really awesome, but I started thinking about uh, something I face all the time is, 
how do you validate the credibility of your witnesses? Are there secrets, techniques you use to expose a hoax or, or somebody that perhaps is over-imaginative? Are there any red flags that you look for? Oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. That's something that I dealt with from the very, very beginning because I was really skeptical. You know, that when when you hear that people are saying there's a werewolf on a certain road near, near your yes. hometown <laughs> at the time, I'm just like, really? And and I mean, I had read a lot of science fiction. My dad was into that, and I, I liked follow. I had followed even the men's magazines talking about the Yeti, you know, back in the '60s. Ivan Sanderson and all those things. So I'd been, I was quite young at that time, but my my dad really liked these, so they were available to me. And um, now I'm losing my. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Lost my train of thought there. So, um, I, I'm I'm a very. Um, vision-oriented vision person, and when I started talking about Ivan Sanderson, all these visions of those Yeti, Yeti illustrations from the old magazines were, were popping into my head. But, but back to verifying these people, at that time, um, you know, it was a little easier than it is now because they were all within a small area and I could go and physically visit them and uh, interview them and write down my impressions of you know, how they spoke and everything. And I, I was actually surprised and impressed by that first group because they all seemed, they were just so, so serious about it. Some were, when they talked about it, they would start shaking again and, mm. and uh, even tears in a couple of cases. And I thought, well, and they were all very different. It wasn't like, you know, a little uh, group of teenage guys. It was, there, were, there was a teenager, there was a junior high age uh, girl and boy who'd been Part of a sledding party that uh, that saw it. There were there was a middle-aged lady who was a factory worker who drove to work at night. There was a, a young single mom who was managing a restaurant bar in in Elkhorn, um, but not imbibing. Uh, far, there were several farmers. Um, a man who had a high clearance at the Milwaukee um, airport at the time. So it was a very diverse group of people and. The other thing was that they were all willing to give their addresses, their information, and be interviewed. And I thought, well, nobody pulling a hoax does that because yes. you, you don't want to make it too easy. Say say they decide to come out, come after you and prosecute you for perpetrating a fraud on the public and you know endangering safety of roadways or something like that. And there they've got all your info to call you right up, you know. So um, I that impressed me too. And I tended to believe after talking to all of them that while I didn't know for sure what it was, that there was something and it was an unusual phenomenon, whether it somehow, as the animal control officer suggested that it was a coyote that was jumping up, leaping up and people were uh -huh. sick and it was just at the top of the leap, but not before or after, which I think is a bigger stretch than, than yes, anything. Yes. Plus, plus I mean, because it, coyotes are just too small. I find sometimes with with some of the um, the rational, I won't say skeptical, but rational um, uh, arguments that are used to, in place of what people see things in regards to Nessie or, or Bigfoot, sometimes it's it's a much bigger stretch than the sighting itself. Exactly. Because you have to take all these twists and turns to, to make it fit. In, in my book, I, I, um, I actually list them as, in the case of Lake Monsters, as um, monster imposters. You know, and uh, you know, eel, sturgeon, all these different types of things, and in the case of the dog man, wolves and coyotes, and you know, dogs standing on two legs, or deer, or, or whatever people might think that they're 
they could be seeing instead. But I, I do understand that it's, you know, I always say it's, it's a big ask to ask anybody to accept that this could possibly be real. So when somebody yes. comes to me with a sighting, I always think, well, first and foremost, do they have any sort of um, trauma-like, um, are they exhibiting any trauma-like symptoms? So when they recall the story, the, are there mundane details included that you don't need, but they're things that they can't forget? You know, right. like a, a street light that was out or, uh, right. you know, some some strange anomaly in the road that you don't need to know about. Right. Do, do you look for things like that as well? I, Cause I, I, do. I do, because because I really cannot get around the world. I, You know, many people don't believe this is not a high-income profession, you know, right? Yes. Right. It's a very niche area of of uh, literacy and you, literature, excuse me, and you just don't make a lot of money, if any. And so I can't be just, you know, hightailing it all over the country and because this thing is, I get reports from everywhere. So um, very often I'll try and talk to people on the phone, uh, interview them that way. And usually in the course of the storytelling, they'll, de they'll describe, as you say, little things that don't really have to do with it. Like there was a, um, one that described a type of, of uh, hatch from a, a sewer, but it was square. And I happen to know that almost all sewer sewer tops are round, so they don't fall in. Uh -huh. It's the only one that can be that, that that does that. And I happen to know that because my husband is a civil engineer that specializes in wastewater uh -huh. management. So I had the in on that one, you know. But when I when I asked him about it, I said, "Could there have been, you know, like a square or rectangular sewer cover?" And he said, "Oh yes, that's the TS one eighty or some number like that. Yes, uh -huh. they're they're used mostly, you know, with access to electrical." Um, areas under under buildings and that's exactly what this would have been so that's another thing and I've, I've had some real I don't know if you read Monsters Among Us there there's one where um, an entire family um, was sitting in church and saw the woman sitting in the pew across from them literally change within an instant from an or very ordinary plain quiet woman into a seven foot tall furry werewolf looks like her clothes disappeared everything just changed in an instant. It it wow. wasn't like, it wasn't like one of these long Hollywood transformations, and you need to really have a lot of faith in in some people to put that kind of a story in. Yes. And so those those people were not in were not really too close to me, but I managed to meet up with them in person three different times. Took my husband, the truthometer guy, along with me, so it wouldn't be just my opinion. Yeah. Um, had I had them describe where the church was and. All about. I had all of that stuff uh, with the minister. Every single little bitty thing they said checked out, down to the smallest detail. And moreover, they were just sort of salt of the earth people. He was a, a former Vietnam veteran um, with some artistic ability and had worked, I think, as a mechanic afterwards. Uh, she was um, just a you know content woman who worked mostly at home, but she had done some work at a church at the church where this happened too. Uh -huh. And um, just people that, why would they seek me out and tell me this story and it make up all kinds of, of odd, random um, things about where the church was and where, what had happened to it and all that kind of thing? They just wouldn't. You know, there's, it, there's no reason for that. It, it doesn't make sense. And of course, I mean, there are people sometimes who are, who are suffering mentally in some way and yes. uh, with, with, you know, very clear hallucinations. You don't normally get that in the family group, of course. And as you say, um, well, I always tell people who, who doubt a lot of witnesses, and of course there are some hoaxes, 
there's sure. really uh, not much money in being a witness. And if you do no. earn any anything from your coming out of the newspapers or publicly, it's normally, you know, local disdain and humiliation. So <laughs> um, it doesn't pay really? well. And in fact, the payment is, is in the minus. So, yes. um, and you can't you cannot pay people for that kind of thing. Although they no. think sometimes they because if you do, you will have all sorts of people coming forward wanting right. to, to tell you that for the money. It's like oh, right. I could go make some cash here. I'll just say that I I, you know, met a werewolf or whatever. Yeah. So it's it's that's why it's ethically not done in any sort of journalism unless you you know are some sort of big. Um, big shot celebrity and it's something that all the big newspapers are vying for the first yeah. story on that's a very different thing this is just ordinary people telling something and volunteering it you know that it happened in their lives and uh, i i do send people who are in the who volunteer their stories like that and, and spend a lot of time at it a copy of the book you know but that's about it yeah i mean if, if somebody uh, appears same with me i normally try to get to get a copy out and uh, everything like that now there was something being in your position you know having um written so many books on on these these subjects i was thinking about the werewolf legends of europe um and um similar legends in the u.s and other places and in your experience do you, are there direct correlations between the old world and new world descriptions of these animals and and if yes do you think they may have been influenced by the mythology of European settlers, or are their First Nations reports that predate the European arrival in North America of werewolf-like creatures? Well, you know, there are a lot of uh, different culture stories of Native Americans that relate to very similar things, you know, and but they're very different from the European style because the European style, you had a man that was somehow through magic able to turn into um, a werewolf, and then, and well, actually, I'm thinking of this. Um, the one that's actually compared a lot to them is in in the Native American lands. Is the uh, I hate I hate to even say its its name. It's the one that is really um, a cannibal type of spirit, where um, a man is turned into entirely into um, a huge ice uh. monster by this spirit that overtakes him. You know, and then with the old European ones, there's a man who has uses magic to appear to be a werewolf, although that changes too. Sometimes um, even even along um, or between all of the European countries, they will change, the, the story changes, it's not monolithic. But mm. what I usually compare it to is, there seemed to be a big renaissance of werewolf awareness back in the um, early centuries or early decades of the 1900s when we started getting the movies and you started getting Lon Chaney and all yes. these beast type of movies and they they were actually drawing on European models of the werewolf changing bodily and using the fur belt and that sort of thing but they Hollywood also made up some things and you know you can check this out some of the earliest directors um, made up things like even he who is chased and and uh, says his prayers by night blah 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 that was actually um, made up by one of the, the directors. Uh, and I, I don't have it in front of me, so I can't say exactly. No, but of creative editing. Right. But, you know, the thing is that we have this big cultural tradition where they're, they're fierce, they're eating people. That's the big thing. They're doing evil things. They're making packs with the devil. Mm -hmm. When I started to investigate these ones on Bray Road, it was sort of like 
a clean slate contemporary uh, field of people who had seen something that really in most, at least these first cases, did not do anything overtly supernatural. Um, mm. These things would see people and they'd either, if they were on their hind legs often, they would just stand up and then vice versa. So the big thing they were doing was walking bipedally, which is not a natural, excuse me, it's not a supernatural act. Yeah. Almost any man mammal um, from just, you know, little chipmunks to um, very much larger ones can even elephants walk on its hind legs if it's motivated or trained to do so or has, has injuries usually is, is the normal reason. You can go on YouTube and, and uh, put in bipedal bear and you'll see these um, videos. It's yes. this wonderful bear that runs around and, and uh, just perfectly straight up, you know, in, in the air standing that way. So that is not a supernatural thing. And I did have this theory that I called the indigenous dog man. And I made a sketch of it based on the actual sketches most people have been, been giving me. And it was scary, but it wasn't anything like these muscle-bound, big, you know, foaming mouth, mm -hmm. um, crazed things that you see today. But these these first um, descriptions of the Beast of Bray Road um, told of something that was the size of maybe a large wolf with the head of a German shepherd or a wolf. It could run and stand up way, upright, and people said it it had legs that bent backwards, and they were just talking about it being uh, on its regular, okay. normal dog-sized toe pads. Um, and then if you know anything about dog anatomy, it's kind of just like us standing on tiptoe because uh, you would see our toes and, you know, what would be called mm. the, the, the base of the foot, and then our heel is up off the air, or excuse me, up off the ground and, and pointing backwards, you know, into the air, and that those two things uh, just relate. If you look at a dog's leg and you realize that where you're thinking a knee should be, it's actually his heel, then uh -huh. it all becomes very clear. And when people say that to me, and they still do, um, not comprehending what it is, because most people have not read widely in the subject before they see it. You know, it's normally just kind of a, no, well, of a course. Su surprise. But the other big thing was that these, peop the, these uh, people who were reporting the the modern ones, to me, were not describing any sense that it was going to eat them or anything like that, really. It was just more like it was scaring them, intimidating them with a, a stare in, right straight in their eyes. Um, sometimes they'd get the feeling it was trying to communicate something scary to them so that it, they would leave it alone. But it wasn't like where you had the Beast of Javadon where lots of people, or, or other ones, where lots of people and livestock were being killed and slaughtered and uh, sometimes, you know, not even eaten, just it seemed killed for the fun of it. That was a very, very different thing. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's, I think it's really, really fascinating, especially um, the the dogman phenomenon, which has become very popular recently. And I, I see that for the last few decades, at least, Bigfoot has been the dominant creature in cryptozoology. Right. And it I seems to be a shift in focus uh, happening. Um, and do you think that's shifting more towards the dogman or just uh, more of a paranormal aspect to cryptozoology in general? Well, there is that, definitely. And um, both things are actually, I think, kind of fomented by TV. For a long time, yeah. you know, this all started with me back in 90, 91, 92, during the New Year's Eve weekend when the, when the first story was published. And it got a lot of press, you know, there was a lot of notoriety, but um, it sort of quieted down and then it would surge again every Halloween. Although I was still continuing to get 
uh, pictures and uh, stories from people who, not pictures, but I, I mean um, drawings. Oh, yes. Not photographs by any means from people all around. And, and so I knew that it was still an ongoing and real phenomena, but um, there didn't seem to be a lot of interest in this thing by other people who were already investigating Bigfoot. It was it was poo-pooed quite a bit and, and still is in some places. But um, I worked at that newspaper for 10 years, I think about, and during that time, I did several short updates, you know, when a, a couple of things had come to light that I thought people would be interested in. That was it. And then it was 2003 before my first books came out. So I had quite a bit of time span in there where I felt like I was just kind of sticking with it. Nobody was terribly interested mm. in it. There was there was sort of a hardcore fan base, but you know, not great numbers. I wasn't even sure I could get a book printed about it. And in fact, when I first went to... Um, the publisher that I began with, which was Trails Media, very very well respected um, area publisher, I showed them my uh, true crime history book, *The Poison Widow*. First, it was a local thing about a poison widow, a poison um, murdering widow who had. Well, it's it's a long story. I won't get into that. But uh -huh. it was it was very um, you know just straightforward true crime history and they, they loved it and they said well what else have you got and so then I gathered up my nerve and I said well um, would you believe werewolves and once and even then my, my idea was not to write this big bloodthirsty savage thing uh -huh. scary thing I wanted to write more of a sociologically based review of it um, so that people could see what happened to the witnesses and what happened to, to the town this little town of Elkhorn you know, where we had all this interest all of a sudden in places they would rather it not be because it's pretty. It's a very, very lovely place. I'm glad I have lived there, but um, it's also very conservative and, mm. and it's, it's had a little trouble that way. Yeah, well, I wonder about that, actually, we, we, with neighborhoods and or towns and, and cities that, that are very, very conservative. I think the the reticence of people to report something is is very high because, of course, yes. your future credibility is attached to that within the town. You're the guy who saw the dogman, and um, you know, from a personal perspective, you might think, well, shall we select Andy for promotion this year? Well, ooh, if Andy <laughs> believes he saw dogman, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps Steve would be a better choice in this instance. Behind closed doors, people have opinions about things and of course you know people can be open-minded as well it's it's a different world now i'm imagining uh, coming out with a sighting like this in the early 90s compared to now it's a very very different world it's especially with the, the dawn of the internet now, Linda, you've actually Thank had you. a cryptid encounter right you, you saw bigfoot several times and you talk about it in your book a little um can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that yeah that was hard for me to talk about because it's such a mixed thing. In in one and now, for one thing, it was very ironic. I wished that they had been Dogman, but yeah. they weren't. You know, if I could have cho if I could have chosen which one to see, it would have made a lot more sense for, you know, my um, focus of study for upright canines. But it wasn't. They were really obviously. Well, I you know I hate to say they were Bigfoot because we just we don't have that complete handle on it being. A creature or an ant, we just don't know what it is. Uh -huh. But what I what I parse it out to is, uh, I say, well, I know for sure 
that I saw something I could not explain as any other species besides Bigfoot and, and had, you know, a, a really amazing uh, several times uh, kind of encounter things that happened uh -huh. where, I, where I didn't see exactly, but I could see the effects right in front of me. And that's very scary too. And neither of those things really frightened me as much as, you know, regular wild animals do. I, they, they don't seem to... Uh, but they seem to want to get you out of wherever they are. Mm, like I heard that. Ter territory or something. So it yeah. can be happening that way. Um, but yeah, I, I did have these these experiences. And I I knew that as somebody who's written about them, people were going to go, oh, yeah, she writes the books. Of course, she's just, yes. <laughs> she's just trying to drum something up. Well, the thing, I've never had to drum up material. And I don't really actively solicit it other than having a box on my my website and mentioning it on podcasts and things, uh -huh. uh, but I've, I never have lacked for material. And um, so that was hard. But then after a while had gone by, a couple of times I'd be interviewing somebody and I'd think, oh, that I saw that and I should have really said something. And it realized I realized that it was sort of, I felt disingenuous for expecting other people to give up their anonymity, mm -hmm. although I don't um, force people to use their names. I'm happy either way if they want to stay anonymous or not. But either way, for me to take their reports and put them in a book and not and knowing that I've had the experiences and not use my own just doesn't seem right or honest to me. And so I felt I really had to fess up and do that. And, well, yeah, I, so I think it's it's honorable. I can see exactly why you'd be worried about doing that, because it's um, it's a conflict of interest. Almost. Right. Isn't it? You know, of course she saw Bigfoot because she's writing about it, and and suddenly here it is. Uh, but of course, as you say, you primarily are known for Dogman, so it is kind of odd that you would uh, have the opposite uh, experience. Yes. I was actually speaking to Monica Rawlins a, a few weeks ago. I interviewed her. She'd been on many TV programs investigating Bigfoot for a long time, and then accidentally saw a Dogman in you know a, a suburban see, area. We need to switch animals. Yes, you, you can do a swap <laughs> together. I'm okay. sure she she was terrified by the experience actually, and I, I'm sure she would be willingly give it up. Um, yeah, a lot I mean, it's, of people it's say that. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, here too, there are some sightings, and one of the things, the weird correlations between the US and UK with Bigfoot and Dogman sightings, although there's a lot less of both here, was that the Dogman or Werewolf type sightings seem to be in the minority compared to Bigfoot sightings in to a similar type of percentage to, to what you have in the U.S. I, so. I agree. I do agree. I really do. Um, and part of it is because if you're Bigfoot, it's really hard to hide what you are unless mm -hmm. they do actually have, you know, invisibility powers or something. You know, you're you're six to eight feet tall, probably more. You're as wide as three, three people. You've got this face that looks half human. You're running on your on your uh, upright, on your flat feet, leaving these big prints. Whereas if you're a canine and you look somewhat wolfish, mm. all you have to do is drop down to all fours and trot away and nobody can say for sure what you were. You know, and if you found a dead, a dead one, it would be the same thing. If you found a dead Bigfoot, you would know what you had. And if you yes. found a dead dog man, because they're really, except in some, there, there are some more extreme accounts where people say they're more pumped up looking, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger types, but most of them yeah. are, are built more like um, just a large size canine. And so you saw a dead one and people have thought that they have in a couple cases. 
um, you would just say, well, that's a kind of a strange-looking large dead dog. So I think that's part of it, is that they're able to just drop to all fours and appear to be the neighbor's farm dog if they want to, you know. So, um, and, and then I do think there may be fewer of them, really, and I'm, I'm not sure why that is, but um, it bears out in the number, as you say, in the ratio of accounts, although it's been changing. And again, it's those... The, t the unrelenting television shows, and they're only increasing. I think, I yeah. think I taped five of them, five different shows, episodes on, on five different shows. One, one was not network. It's been uh, really popular though. So you have TV just really bringing it out, and yes. then the internet, which we didn't have, you know, really for that whole decade. Not to the extent we have it now. For that whole decade where I worked at the newspaper, it was, uh, you know, mostly just what you would see on TV. Well, I, I definitely, I mean, definitely, definitely see it. Having been into this uh, genre for a long time, the, the switch is almost palpable. And there's other things like Mothman and, uh, you know, the Lake Monsters are still in in the background for those who want them. Champ and Nessie and Ogopogo are still floating around. But they're there. only yes. really get the, the hardcore guys. <laughs> the, I call them the, the doing the sit-ins, you know, the Scott Mardis and Kate right. Elizabeth and Steve. Well, I do that. Um, I I, I do stakeouts and spend quite a lot of time in the field, although one of these last shows really kind of ticked me off because they showed me in my office, you know, um, at my typewriter doing things like that, and then they showed somebody else doing the things I do out in the woods, you know, oh. in the, the same woods, the places where I showed them, you know, where, we, where we've had some uh, hot spots. And people have even asked me about it. They're like, how come they only showed you at your desk? And then that guy was out there, you know, doing the things in the woods. So, um, yeah, that's something else I contend with a little bit, too. Well, in, in that case, I mean, I think that's that's a good point. And maybe a, a double question here to, to finish up for you. So you've done quite a bit of TV work. And what are the pitfalls of presenting good evidence in this sensationalized soundbite era? As, as you say, one of the pitfalls for you is being portrayed as the um, the researcher at her desk instead of the researcher who's also out in the field. Uh, mm -hmm. But are, are there also um, uh, pitfalls in, in terms of perception and, and how um, things are presented? Yeah, that always is a, a thorny thing. I, I have never thought that I was really... Um, good on camera, you know, in, in any way, but I do usually accept when I'm asked to do one of these shows because I figure even though they have the power and they have this by, power by contract that you have to sign that some are literally uh -huh. like 40 pages long, that they can do whatever they want with what they shoot of you. And so there's always the danger of it being, uh, you know, just kind of messed around with and, and everything intensified and, mm. and not coming out quite right. But I always know, too, that at least... If I have some part in it, um, maybe it holds back that sensationalism, or gets the truth uh, holds the truth a little bit closer, you know, up to the lens yeah. scene, you know. And I don't have that chance if somebody else takes over and and does the whole thing. So, and I've had some some a couple that were really horrendous. Um, many of them are very good. Um, most are somewhere in 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 the middle. And it, it is it is when people play with the facts. You know, there was one that ended with the they went through pretty well and I was watching it thinking, well, this isn't too bad. You know, I'm not too badly portrayed. This is right. This is right. And they got to the end and they said, and five horses were found with their necks cut and slaughtered on my oh. road. <laughs> and 
that it was such a falsehood and I immediately I was still you know sort of in touch with that yes. control officer and I called him and I said John did I miss something were there five horses slaughtered you know when you when you were working there and he said no he said I would have known that and I said yeah I'm, I'm sure you would have and and then I would have known and neither of us he said it that's just you know not right not true I I I always weigh it up in my mind. Of course, I'm trying to sell the series on this side as well, the Beast of Britain thing, aside from from doing the little um, uh, nepotism podcast that I do <laughs> uh, here. But it's a strange thing because things have to be entertaining, but also as right. factual as possible. And, and real right. life isn't actually very entertaining. So how it's you? always, you know, how do you miss those two together. I think Seth Breedlove's doing a wonderful job at it at the moment, yes. personally. They, um, I, I liked his, his uh, he called it the, the Bray Road Beast is the mm, title. It's wonderful. Yeah. I encourage people to read it, you know, definitely. And I'm learning how difficult it is doing this one myself. You know, I've always been on the being filmed side, but I've never uh, been um, kind of the, the main director. But my, I have to say, my, my son is doing most of the actual work because he's the one who knows how to do all the the cameras and how the movies put together he's very 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 into it well this is an excellent situation because he's your son and your mum you have power over the director fantastic <laughs> Not, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah well he actually does. and it's been and my husband's in on it too he's kind of a field producer and um he's he's he actually sold two of his uh photographs to one of the of the networks and is so he's building himself as a professional photographer now fantastic. just kind of joking. yeah That's he's great yeah, so, so yeah, it's um, been a real learning experience. I think it's fantastic. It's fantastic for me to get to talk to you about these these things. And I, I know we sort of kept off the book a little bit, but I was really intrigued by you know your opinion on these these different sort of uh, issues that affect people in the cryptozoology community. I often say to people, I wrote about it as well, that uh, there's a sort of idea that with cryptozoology, you should check your reputation at the door and that you can be That's further from the truth. That's about well, and I like to say, well, I, I was um, an art teacher, you know, and a journalist, so I have no professional reputation. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's easier, much easier to start with it that way. No, definitely. Um, just before we go, I know you attend a lot of conferences and book signings, etc. Where can people go to hear you speak, get the book signed, follow you around, etc.? Where's the best place to find you? Yeah, if you go to um, my blog, which is just lindagodfrey.com, no W's or anything, lindagodfrey.com, and uh, most of the information is on the About page, and you'll find on there, um, there's a calendar of events, things that I have coming up, which I'm working on updating right now, and you'll also find um, more, more bio stuff, and there's a list of books and all that kind of thing. And then on the main page, there's a search button you can search for, um, Bigfoot Branch, if you're interested in one of the things that happened to me. My first thing that ha my first contact where I really thought it was Bigfoot is there. And many, many other stories, things that don't often make it in the books. Um, so it's all at, and there's also, if you go to the About page, there's also an, uh, uh, a contact box where you can just type in if you want to report a story or have a question or something like that. That that's fantastic, Linda. Of course, we'll put all of those links with the um, with the show as well, so anybody can just just click on and, and find you there too. And, and thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a, a real honor to speak to you. You're welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me, and thanks to all of your listeners too. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs>